scriptural sexual ethics. Point number five. Marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% to the extraordinary number of less than 1%. There is a way to lower divorce rate from the current 52% in the United States to less than 1%. And if you knew of this way, don't you think it would be criminal not to share it? Now, what might be the reason for keeping quiet about this knowledge to really and truly divorce-proof marriage to the rate of uh, 99% success rate, or in other words, less than 1% divorce? Well, one reason why we might not share it is because we just never knew about it before. We never knew anything about this way, and that's understandable. Another reason not to share this is that that statistic of lowering the divorce rate to less than 1% may be simply untrue. So then it behooves us to investigate it to show it to be untrue. The third reason may be that it is, immo- it is immoral and a violation of Scripture. And if that's the case, I, I agree. If it violates Scripture, we should not present it. But if it is moral or even amoral, By amoral, I mean neither moral nor immoral. It's like driving a car. It's neither more, doesn't make you more or less holy driving a car. It's just driving a car. So whether, if it's moral or even amoral, then we shouldn't hesitate to present it to our families and our flock. And could it be that the reason we don't present it is that it is neither immoral nor unscriptural, but that we know that it contains the cross and we're afraid for ourselves, let alone our flock, to bear that cross. Recall what I asked you at the beginning of this teaching. Do not lower God's standard to your own personal experience. Decide to go wherever the truth takes you, but it is up to you to follow the truth. Truth is not afraid of your questions. The question is, are we afraid of truth? But remember, most of our sin is based on ignorance. For we don't rise up in the morning intent, being intent on sinning. Therefore, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I know that, that many of you might have enjoyed uh, the introduction in points one through four. But what I'm going to hit you with now is something quite intense. And this is not for cowards. So that if, uh, if you're becoming weary and unable, maybe this is a, a good time to turn this off. Because what I'm going to hit you with is something that uh, has not been considered much by the evangelical church. Now, hold on to your seats. Here's how to reduce the divorce rate to less than 1%. And it is, do not use contraceptives. Do not use contraceptives. This statistic of 52% Average divorce rate in the United States lowering to less than 1% in groups of people that do not use contraceptives is clear. The University of California conducted the same study, and they came up with a number of 4.5% rather than less than 1%. And as you can imagine, the University of California is not uh, predisposed to enjoying this type of methodology. But their number of 4.5%, even if we take that, that is one-twelfth the national average of divorce rate. Hence, regardless of the reasons why this works, 
it at least demands our attention. But let me also note that refraining from the use of contraceptives is neither a magic bullet nor a new legalism. Couples that choose to refrain from contraceptives often have sacrificial caring attitudes toward each other that foster a sense of reciprocal communication, love, and care, thereby yielding marriages that are unusually strong. And we're going to see more of this. Now let's track the history of contraception. In 1930, or until 1930, until 1930, every church in America taught that contraception was immoral, like adultery. In 1930, the Anglican Church embraced the quote-unquote cautious use of contraception. By the 1950s, nearly every Protestant denomination abandoned the ancient Christian teaching on contraception. By the early 60s, all churches except the Catholic Church formally and encouragingly embraced contraception. As a young man seeking my godly pastor's counsel before marriage, he spoke glowingly of contraception. And for those of you who would argue that this is just a Catholic thing, and therefore you question its veracity, let me quote from a church father that you might respect. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, said this, How great, therefore, the wickedness of the human of human nature is how many girls there are that prevent conception and kill and expel tender fetuses, although procreation is the work of God. Unquote. So you see, Martin Luther was quite opposed to this. He called it a wickedness of human nature to prevent conception. John Calvin and John Wesley were both unwavering in their opposition to contraception. So it's not just a Catholic thing. You might argue that they didn't have contraceptives back then. Not so. The quest to separate sex from fertility is millennia old, with data dating back almost 4,000 years. Historian Andrea Tone writes, The oldest guide to contraception that we have is the Petri Papyrus, an Egyptian medical papyrus dating to 1850 B.C. recommended vaginal suppositories made of crocodile dung or gum or a mixture of honey and sodium carbonate. Women in pre-industrial West Africa made intravaginal plugs of crushed root while Japanese women made them of bamboo tissue and women of Easter Island made them of algae and seaweed. Around 100 A.D., an Ephesian doctor named Seranos authored a gynecological textbook describing 17 methods of contraception which he recommended as a safer option to abortion. Isn't that interesting? So it dates back almost 4,000 years. And likewise, you can see the abuse of women, suggesting that they use crocodile dung as a diaphragm to plug themselves so that men can enjoy themselves without taking on great responsibility. You know, the church stood fast opposed to the practice of contraception in the writings of many of the early church leaders. St. Hippolytus in 225, Epiphania of Salmaeus, 
in 375 and St. John Chrysostom in 391 all wrote opposing contraception. The non-Catholic Church, however, cut loose from the tradition in the 1930s and 1940s. And in 1955, C.S. Lewis wrote on this topic in a book he entitled Abolition of Man. Quote, As regards contraceptives, there is a paradoxical negative sense in which all possible future generations are the patients or subjects of a power wielded by those already alive. By contraception simply, they are denied existence. Unquote. Now let's have a de definition of terms and also look at some statistics. First of all, there is no such thing as natural versus unnatural contraception. Contraception is a choice by any means to inhibit the procreative potential of an act of sexual intercourse, intentionally and willfully seeking to suppress fertility. Contraception is a choice by any means to inhibit the procreative potential of an act of sexual intercourse. As a side note, sexual intercourse is brought about by the inseminating union of genitals. Thus, in homosexuality, it is impossible to have the inseminating union of genitals. It is impossible. All they can do is a parody. And I'm not throwing stones. I have loads of my own sin. But it is worth noting. Now, back to the topic. Natural family planning, which is often abbreviated NFP, natural family planning is not the old rhythm method. It carefully tracks the cervical mucus or the woman's body temperature. It uses the natural patterns of the woman's body to track the times when a woman is capable of becoming pregnant and modifying sexual behavior in accord with those patterns by abstaining from sex during these periods if she does not want to become pregnant. The woman can tell by the vaginal mucus the moistness she experiences for a few days each month. And only the woman knows. It is three to four days of cervical mucus plus three days after it stops. Beyond those seven to eight days, sometimes six days, you can ha a woman can have all the sex that they want without becoming pregnant. In NFP, natural family planning, there has been no such sexual intercourse. So by its very nature, it is not contraceptive. Remember, contraception is a choice by any means to inhibit the procreative potential of an act of sexual intercourse. In NFP, there has been no such act. NFP has a 99% success rate. 99% success rate. The only way a pill can offer that rate of success is if the pill is taken at the exact same time every day and that the pill is never used in conjunction with any other medications. Other than that, it will never guarantee you a 99% success rate. Now, the pill has three modes of action. First of all, it lessens the cervical mucus to inhibit sperm travel. Secondly, it retards, does not prevent, but retards ovulation. And thirdly, it lessens uterine wall buildup to retard implantation of a fertilized egg. Both two and three result in the pill being an abortifacient. A pill, the using of the pill can cause abortion. Why? Because ovulation is not prevented, it is only retarded. So there are many chances for a, 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 uh, an egg to become fertilized. 
Then it also lessens the uterine wall buildup so that the egg cannot implant, the fertilized egg cannot implant. And so what happens is a fertilized egg can pass through. Interestingly, in 1976, in order to sidestep the abortifacient nature of the pill, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists redefined pregnancy as being the successful implantation of a fertilized egg and no longer from the moment of fertilization. How convenient. And this is not just the pill, which is the estrogen-progestin combination, or the mini-pill, which is only progestin, but also the intrauterine device, the IUD, the morning-after pills, emergency contraceptives, and even some studies suggest the same for Depro-Provera and Norplant. In every case, they function in part as degradants of the uterine wall, thereby retarding implantation of a fertilized egg. How many Christians, if they knew that they had the possibility of flushing a fertilized egg out of their bodies due to their use of contraceptives, would stop using them? I think most, because most of what is done is done out of innocence. They simply do not know. Jesus proclaims forgiveness, and I'm not here to condemn. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Contraceptives were not developed to prevent pregnancy. We already had a 100% proven method. It worked every time. It was called abstention. Contraceptives were developed so that we would not have to abstain. But what about other methods, such as the much-tailed condom or vaginal barriers or diaphragms of any kind? They're not abortifacients, are they? No but it does cause the objectification of the woman in much the same way that other modes of contraception do, as we shall see. Here's the legitimate question. What's the difference between NFP and contraception? Don't couples who use either means have the same goal in mind? For example, no babies? Well, Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliot explains it this way. Quote, The difference that became so clear to me is the difference between the deliberate interruption of the transmission of life during the fertile period and the responsible use of the natural rhythms which are imminent in the reproductive system. In other words, the difference between impeding a natural process or making the legitimate use of the natural disposition which God the Creator has built into the reproductive system. Unquote. That was Elizabeth Elliot. Now, some may argue that the end is still the same, no pregnancy, to which I would respond, what's the difference between abortion and miscarriage? The end is the same, no baby. But one is a natural act of God and the other is a designed human act. Or what's the difference between shooting grandma and just letting her die naturally? The end is the same, dead grandma. But one is a natural act of God and the other is a deliberate and designed human act. Now let's return to the question of why NFP, why natural family planning methods might work to sustain marriages as opposed to contraceptive methods, even those that are not abortifacients such as condoms and diaphragms. Recall that NFP couples have less than 1% divorce rate. Therefore, regardless of the reasons, we need to pay homage to the efficacy, whether we can explain it or not. As a reminder, loving as Christ loves calls us to confess lives of free, total, 
faithful and fruitful love. And what we do with our bodies testifies deep meaning. NFP speaks truth. Speaking truth with our bodies. Contraception is the divider. I commit to loving you freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. Well, you can't lie. Sex and fertility go together. When you change the natural union, you're not being truthful as a testimony with your bodies. NFP speaks fidelity. Fidelity to the marriage commitment is the ultimate reason for NFP. The couples demonstrate their fidelity to their vows every month, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, no matter how much sacrifice is required. And remember, they abstain from sex for about one week every month. Don't you think that a couple that has learned how to say no to sex within marriage when appropriate would have, uh, would have no trouble saying no to sex when it is presented outside of marriage? NFP speaks trust. If a man goes without sex within marriage for some good reason that is agreed upon by the couple, no matter how hard it is for him, then don't you think he'd be able to resist the sexual temptation outside the bonds of marriage? And there are plenty, op- plenty of opportunities where, where a secretary will lift her skirt for a man in the workplace. And the man must learn how to say no to sex outside the confines of marriage. And learning to say no to sex even within marriage for agreed upon times can strengthen that commitment. Abstention strengthens the trust. NFP speaks, I would not dare hurt you. Look at the paperwork that comes with the pill. It says that there could be increased rate of cysts, bloating, weight gain, migraines, strokes, irritability, depression, and it lowers the sexual drive. Well, boy, I want that for my wife. We're to care for the other's body. We're to take pills for maladies, not for proper health. Fertility is normal. Infertility is a disorder. Yet we tell women that they should take this pill so that they can free themselves from their own fertility. I'm an organic chemist, trained as an organic chemist, and I never let my wife take the pill. Even before I understood the deficiencies of the practice of contraception, I just never wanted her taking it because I well knew what this pill does to a woman's body. I wanted to protect her. NFP speaks, I love you as you are, fertility and all. What do you think, what would you think of a man who says that he'd only love you if you get a boob job? In the same way, in the same way, you're not obliged to change your fertility for your husband's demands. Respectfully explain your position and your desire to not be an object for his sexual pleasure. You are his wife and desire to be loved as you are and as Christ loves you. NFP practicing couples are always thinking about their sex lives, discussing things like cervical mucus and longing for the times to reunite, and very often discussing the topic of children. Rather than saying, here, you take this pill, you take this pill, and we'll talk about kids in five years. No, you're always discussing the topic of children. And if you can learn to discuss cervical mucus, you can talk about anything. There might be good reasons not to have sex or children. What might be a reason? Well, if one partner is sick, it would be unloving 
to demand that there be sex when one partner is sick. Sick. Another reason, maybe you're at the in-laws and the walls are thin. Probably a good time not to have sex. Maybe you're camping in a, in a tent with your children. Maybe you can't afford any more kids. Or maybe you have difficulty. The woman has difficulty in deliveries. I certainly saw this with my wife. Uh, we have four children and 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 uh, Shreem was, was uh, 35 when, when our fourth child was born. And it was much harder for her, and much harder uh, uh, caring of the baby and delivery of the baby at that age than it was when, when she was 24 and we had our first child. Maybe you're emotionally fried and you can't handle another. There may be good reasons to refrain from having sex when you don't want children. Well, let's look at some scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it says, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you see, he says, you know, you're not to deprive yourself from one another, one another except for prayer. There are periods of prayer there are times when you may want to refrain. Fasting from sex for a time for the purpose of prayer. And some people think that that, that means, you, you know, uh, uh, hey, I prayed for, for a millisecond and now let's have sex again. I mean, that's not real. I mean, what if somebody told you I, I, I fasted? You said, well, well, how long have you been fasting? Well, you know, I, I, it, it's 5 p.m. right now and I've been fasting since lunchtime. So I've been pa- fasting for the past four hours. Well, that's not a real fast. A fast is something that takes something from you, that calls you to something higher. In the same way, refraining from sex for a time for, the, for any specific purpose, that purpose being prayer, calls you out from sex for some particular period of time, not just 30 seconds. See First Chronicles. Uh, um, well, well let, let, let's look at um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's a man named Uriah the Hittite, and there's an, another man named David, King David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, it speaks of King David, and it speaks of how he raped Bathsheba. Clearly, he raped Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And although David had dozens of wives that he could have, he, he could, uh, wives and concubines to sleep with, he decided to go after another man's wife, Bathsheba. But if you now consider this person in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, the guy who couldn't even keep his zipper up, if you look in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David fasted from sex for at least seven days. You see in chapter 12, verse 16, it says, David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Then, after seven days, the child died. And David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. So you see, he fasted from sex for seven days, at least seven days from both food and sex. So he went for a period without it. In 2 Samuel 
chapter 11, verse 11, Uriah says to David that he, he was refusing to have sex with his wife. His reasoning was, and in fact that reasoning was quite justified, and, and Uriah was always spoken of highly by God. He says in, second chapter, in chapter 11, verse 11 of Second Samuel, The ark and the Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, Uriah said. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. So you see that Uriah refused to have sex with his wife for a time as a matter of principle and for a well-defined purpose. And he was shown by God to be a, a terrific man, spoken of highly, spoken of as one of David's mighty men in the end of Second Samuel. There are times, legitimate times, to refrain from sex. This is not unusual in the scriptures. The devil hates the woman's fertility. Absolutely hates it. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You see, the devil hates the fertility of woman. In Revelation chapter 12, Verse 4, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she gave birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The devil hates woman's ability to bear new life. There's enmity placed between the serpent and the seed of the woman. So he tries to eliminate the seed. Imagine this picture. A dragon standing over a woman who is about to give birth so that as soon as this baby comes out, the dragon will devour this child. Look at the picture. This is what the enemy is like. He hates new life. The devil tries to enter the garden and destroy it in Genesis. But in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, God proclaims, you shall not enter this womb. God is the protector. You shall not enter this womb. You shall not affect this child. And the one flesh union of marriage in Ephesians 5 refers to Christ and the church, which is consummated in the Lord's Supper, which results in the union with God. Contraception is like taking the Lord's Supper, yet spitting it out due to the obligations incurred by eating the bread and drinking the cup. So what does life itself tells us? tell us? Well, you can get a, a, a group of young couples in a room, young Christian couples, and get them talking. And like we said in the last section, that men will say that their biggest frustration is they don't get enough sex in marriage, and wives say that they feel overrun by this guy who's always wanting sex, and in order to protect themselves, they, they say that they have a headache. But couples, you, in this room, if you, if you have this room full of couples, but among them, if you have one couple in there who does not practice contraception, they will look at each other as these other couples are talking and wonder, what are they talking about? They don't feel this frustration of sexual... Uh, issues in marriage. They just don't feel it. 
And their rate of divorce, interestingly, is less than 1%. And this works not just in the church, but also outside the church. Couples that prefer not to practice contraception. It is a choice. When I get this right, when I get this right, when I understand this with my wife and practice the proper bedroom conduct as we talked about in the last chapter, I don't have to continually appeal to my wife in order to get sex. I mean, there is plenty there. You don't take pills for maladies. I had this discussion with a physician. He says, look, you know this prescribing of pills. This is all of what medicine is. And I told him, you don't, you, 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 you do not take pills for orders, but for disorders. Do you give somebody a pill to render something that, that's natural to be unnatural? When's the last time you prescribed somebody some pills to remove their 20-20 eyesight? Or to lower their ability to hear? Or to make them into an arthritic or into a diabetic? You never prescribe pills to do that to people. But what you'll do is you will render the natural fertility into infertility. Why do we live in a world where fertility is a curse? It boils down to human life and its very meaning. Sex and fertility go together. When we change the meaning of sex, it will have an impact on our understanding of the church. A sterilized church cannot be fruitful. And I'm not condemning, but I simply refuse to buy into what I see as a lie, regardless of how much some believers embrace it. The pill makes a woman into a man in a sense, to become like a man, one who can have sex without becoming pregnant. But if a woman needs a pill to become equal with a man, it's testifying that she's not already equal. Yet remember, equality does not equal sameness. A woman will often reject motherhood to get dignity in the world by becoming more manlike. But rejecting femininity, femininity is not God's order. As Mary said, be it done to me according to your will. We need women in the workplace, CEOs, presidents, professors, scientists, deans, administrators, board members, to bring their unique perspective as women into the world. Women need not become like men to do this. Woman, your womanness needs to be there. We need to see even pregnant women in the workplace. It is good for all of us. The call to motherhood is knit into your very body and your fertility is given by God and it is beautiful to Him and it should be also to your husband. Now let's look at Supreme Court rulings. The Supreme Court rulings unequivocally indicate that our acceptance of contraception naturally affords the right to abortion. In America's history, there has been a clear progression from endorsing contraceptives to accepting abortion. Legally, Reproductive rights were first established by the Supreme Court in Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965, which guaranteed the right to contraception to married couples. In Eisenstadt v. Baird in 1972, the court extended contraceptive rights to the unmarried. Both decisions overturned states' laws passed primarily by Protestant legislators in the 19th century that had banned or restricted the, the sale of contraceptives. This would have set... this. Could this have set the precedent for Roe v. Wade in 1973? The court thinks so. In writing for the majority in Roe v. Wade, Justice Harry Blackmun wrote that the realm of sexual privacy established by Griswold v. Connecticut and Eisenstadt v. Baird, where the issue of contraception is established, 
is broad enough to encompass the woman's decision whether or not to, whether or not to terminate pregnancy. Furthermore, in upholding Roe v. Wade in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, the High Court wrote how contraception legitimizes abortion. In Roe v. Wade decision, they, they, they wrote this in 1992, quote, the Roe v. Wade decision could not be repudiated without serious inequity to people who, for two decades of economic and social development, have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail, unquote. So the Supreme Court's precedent is clear. There's been a direct progression from endorsing contraceptives to accepting abortion. Well, what are the sociological trends? When the Anglican Church endorsed contraceptives in the 1930s, it was predicted by Protestants, Catholics, and secular writers alike that there'd be an increase in adultery, divorce, premarital sex, out-of-wedlock birth, abortion, and fatherless children, which, by the way, leads to increased crime, violence, and homosexuality. Why? Well, when you take, when you disorient the sexual act away from life, you see a degradation of society. And further, the logic could be that the main deterrent to adultery was an unwanted pregnancy. Now that this main deterrent is removed, what would happen to a society if penalties for crime were done away with? Crime would abound. Not that the penalty should be the mitigator of the crime, but the fact is that the penalty does inhibit further criminal activity. In the same way, contraception leads to more out-of-wedlock sex. Take the deterrent away and there is more premarital sex. Premarital sex is being unfaithful in advance and unfaithfulness leads to the main reason for divorce when now in marriage. Thank God we have a God who can heal, but steps must be taken to repair the damage. When premarital sex increases, you have many women getting pregnant who did not want to be. This then leads to abortion. Some experts tell us now that trying to use contraception to rid us of abortion is like throwing gasoline on a fire. Now, not every woman, not every woman will abort her baby, thank God. But this leads also to a society of fatherless children, which is the main demographic indicator of increased crime, violence, poverty, drugs, and homosexuality where there's a lack of affirmation from and desire for a father. When you sever sex from procreation, any whole will do. Any means to sexual gratification is justifiable when you sever sex from procreation. There are a hundred ways for a man to achieve sexual gratification, but there is only one way, one way that images God and that is a self-sacrificial giving of himself to his wife as Christ to the church in free, total, faithful, and fruitful giving. Every other method is self-gratifying and a perversion. My prediction is that within the next 30 years, the Protestant church will vindicate the Catholic church based on their constant stance that contraception is a poor choice. Within the next 50 years, the Protestant church will look back on this generation and shudder as to how far we, who thought we embraced all truth, can stray. Now consider your call. Should contraceptives be thrown out? The decision is yours as a couple. This is a decision of yours. It is your own decision. It is not a new legalism being put upon you. 
But men, I submit that if you really loved your wife, you would not render her womb sterile. If you do render it sterile, you don't love her totally because you don't love her fertility. Men, you can reverse your vasectomy, which rendered you sterile. Ask God what it means to be a real man. Our loins cry out that we were created by God to enter the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of the Most High. Scripture says that the one flesh union is like Christ and the church. You may have reason not to enter a church, but you have no right to desecrate it. You may have good reason to space your children, or to delay, or to have no others in cases where bearing any more could cause physical peril to your wife. But it is different than rendering infertile that which God has made fertile. Therefore, I beg married couples to please reconsider your use of contraceptives in light of the evidence and the statistically divorce and statistically divorce proof your marriage and learn to enjoy your spousal relationship in light of God's highest order. Note, however, that the use of contraceptives is neither a magic bullet nor a new legalism. As I stated before, couples that choose to refrain, refrain from contraceptives often have sacrificial caring attitudes toward each other that foster a sense of reciprocal communication, love, and care, thereby yielding marriages that are unusually strong. Now let me return again to the challenges to leaders. Would it be criminal for us to know and not share if we could really divorce-proof marriages? What might be the reason for keeping this knowledge quiet, regardless of whether we've hit upon the correct rationale for the efficacy of the approach? Well, one reason may be that we never knew of it before. But now that's changed, so it's no longer an excuse. Maybe you believe that the statistic is untrue. Then it behooves you to investigate it to show it to be untrue. If it is immoral or a violation of Scripture, I agree. If it is a violation of Scripture, we should not present it. But if there is a method that is moral or even amoral, we should not hesitate to present it to our families and our flock. Now, maybe you feel that the statistical data set of less than 1% divorce rate is representative of something much larger than contraception. For example, the low percentage of divorce among non-contracepting couples might be an indication of the couple's overall commitment to a body of ideals and practices, not just non-contraception, that, in total, yield marriages that are amazingly sound. And I'll accept that view. But let's follow that line of reasoning. If you knew that no marriage is divorced if they practiced tithing, would you not teach your flock that tithing couples, for whatever reasons, never divorce? I think you would. Because you honor marriage, you want to teach things that guarantee its success, you further appreciate what tithes can do for the church. And you understand that tithing people make less, uh, tithing people are less selfish. Therefore, better spouses, better parents, and better church laborers because selfless people give of themselves. Hence, tithing is a primer for a body of behavioral practices that make us more Christ-like. Therefore, if NFP is a practice of a group of marriages that never divorce, and generally flow with far less marital sexual disorders, then why not share that common thread behavioral practice, regardless of the breadth of reasons for its outstanding success? Could it be that the reason we don't present it as a wonderfully successful choice for couples is that we know it contains the cross, and we are afraid for ourselves, let alone our flock, to bear that cross? Recall what I asked you at the beginning. 
please do not lower God's standard to your own personal experience. And may, may I make a cross-filled suggestion? If you have trouble bringing yourself to present a behavioral choice regarding contraception that you know could be good for your flock, confess your weakness to others, maybe even your flock, noting to them your own shortcomings, and let them pray for you. In that manner, you will demonstrate to others your own humanity, and you will probably receive mercy, victory, and a stronger congregation. Let me now go over a few specifics about how to, how to uh, practice natural family planning and, and some resources on this topic. It turns out that a woman is fertile for only about 12 to 24 hours per month. The sign of the fertile period begins when the woman feels the vaginal mucus within her. That mucus begins to change in consistency. So how do you practice natural family planning? Let me say, I first recommend a simple method described by the Family of the Americas. There is a $5 downloadable book on the how-tos of natural family planning. So you can just do a Google search on Family of the Americas and look, look at their resources. Or you can go to, uh, let me just read off this, this, uh, this URL. It will take you right, right to the book, which you can download for $5. HTTP colon slash slash store, that's S-T-O-R-E dot yahoo dot com slash F-A-F, that stands for Family of the Americans, of the Americas, F-A-F dash store slash love fertility, all one word, dot html let me say that again http colon slash slash store dot yahoo dot com slash f a f dash store slash love fertility dot html this is a simple mucus only method in a simple presentation and here's basically the steps about seven days after the woman's monthly menstrual period a sticky and dense mucus forms in the vagina that she can check with her finger or via wiping with a tissue after urination. At this point, when the sticky and dense mucus forms, she has entered the fertile cycle. She should refrain from sex if she does not want to become pregnant. After a few days, the mucus becomes clear and feels wet and slippery within the vaginal opening. The woman has a definite feeling of lubrication within the vaginal opening. The last day on which the woman feels wet and slippery is called the peak day. Recall, the peak day is the last day on which the woman feels wet and slippery. Now count three days past the peak day, because there's also the possibility of those being the fertile days. On the fourth day after the peak day, the woman can no longer conceive and she can begin to have sex again. The total is four to five days from the start of wetness through the peak day. Then three days after the peak day are also part of the fertile cycle. Therefore, seven to eight days per month, depending on the woman, that she should refrain from sex. Note that when the wet feeling disappears, the woman feels dry. Any mucus at this point will become less elastic in nature, and the woman will not feel the sensation of being wet and slippery. This sense of dry and non-slippery will then continue. The mucus-only method is great for women with regular menstrual cycles. 
If she is irregular, then cross-correlation with a body temperature check in a specially calibrated oral thermometer is helpful. This method uses both mucus, the mucus method, which we just discussed, and the oral thermometer method that shows a 0.2 degree, 0.2 degree increase in the temperature that correlates with the fertile phase. There are several courses that you can, you can sign on to that teach this. One is the Billings ovulation method. It is the mucus-only method. And, and you can just search these on the Internet, do a Google search. The Billings, B-I-L-L-I-N-G-S, ovulation method. Or the Creighton method, which is, again, a mucus-only method. That's Creighton, C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. And then there's also the couple-to-couple lead classes. And that is a mucus plus temperature method. So they, they cross-correlate with both. And uh, um, so you can, you can do the searches in whatever city you're in for, for those courses. And they're taught in, in, in certainly in most major cities. Let me give you my observations from my teaching of, of this, this whole topic on scriptural sexual ethics. In general, people over 45 are skeptical of natural family planning. I think partly because they've been so used to it. It's odd to consider anything different. Plus, there's the tendency, tendency to say, well, you know, my marriage wasn't perfect, but we got through okay. Well, their hormones are less active at this stage, so the sexual struggles are often less. My observations are that married couples in their 20s and early 30s often grasp at this, knowing that there's got to be more to marriage than what they're experiencing. And people in their mid-30s to mid-40s can go either way when they hear this message on NFP. Regardless, I share this all with you, without regret or embarrassment. Let me give you uh, uh, some resources for further reading if you're interested. One is uh, a book called Open Embrace, A Protestant Couple Rethinks Contraception. Open Embrace, A Protestant Couple Rethinks Contraception. That's by Sam and Bethany Tarode, T-O-R-O-D-E, 2002. Sam and Bethany Tarode, T-O-R-O-D-E. Another book is, is called Good News About Sex and Marriage. Good News About Sex and Marriage by Christopher West, published in 1997. And Theology of the Body Explained by Christopher West, published in 2003. Theology of the Body Explained by Christopher West in 2003. And as I said in the introduction, I need to say again, a large part of the material that I use came from Christopher West's lectures and books, and I'm deeply indebted to him for his works on this topic, which have been extensively incorporated into this teaching. Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to have shared this message. And I pray, Father, that you would take the listeners, the hearers of this message, wherever they might be, and so impress upon their hearts your order for marriage, for relationship between man and the woman. And they would experience the freedom and the joy that comes and how it indeed is a foreshadow of the excitement and joy of being with Christ in union with Him that will come one day. And Father, I pray that through this you would strengthen marriages. You would strengthen young marriages and cause them to last. And Father, I pray that you would take this word considering natural family planning and that every couple would so consider it 
and so make an informed choice. And through this, you would strengthen marriages. To the glory of God, to the glory of my Lord Jesus, I present this. Amen.